about Jesus and his friends. One of the great challenges, I think, that the church faces is overcoming the idea that church is a place that you go and that the church time is sort of confined to to that sacred hour, Sunday morning, whether it's nine o'clock or or 11 o'clock. But whatever it is, you can sense that perspective at work in the questions we ask each other. Where do you go to church? Expecting that the answer is a place, not to a people. When is church happening? And the answer they're looking for is some time that's usually indicated out on the sign. Now, it's interesting. When you go leafing through the Gospels, you never actually see Jesus saying to anyone, thou shalt go to church. But here's what Jesus did say. And these are the words that that Juliet read. By the way, didn't Juliet do a great job? We gave her one of the tough sections with all of the names, and and bless you, Juliet. We just celebrated with Juliet in baptism not too many months ago. Thank you for leading us. Mark chapter 3 says that Jesus went up on a mountainside, and then he called together those that he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, 12 friends, so that they could be with him, and then he could send them out. He may have never said, Thou shalt go to church. But what he did do was create a new community, this little community of friends, of of disciples. And church for them wasn't so much a place that they went on an appointed time. It was a way that they did life together. They'd eat together, and they'd learn together, and they'd pray together. They did ministry together, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much so. They'd argue with each other. They got jealous. They fought with each other sometimes. They competed with each other. But they also served each other. And they learned to wash each other's feet. And they grew afraid together. And sometimes they failed. And sometimes they celebrated. And always they watched each other grow. And you know, in the end, I mean, surely just as a matter of historical record, they changed the world like no other group of human beings has ever done so before or since. But it didn't happen because Jesus said to them, hey, I want you to go to church once a week. Instead, what Jesus did, Jesus formed this highly intentional life on life, spirit-led, transformational community. The kind of community where his followers, his friends, his disciples, they were shaped and formed and sent. That's what Jesus called together, and he's still calling for it today. And he made this staggering promise. It was staggering when he first spoke the words. It should still be staggering today. We're fortunate because it got written down. So let's read this together out loud from Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Let's bring it up on the screen. Let's read it together. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am in thee. When you pause for a second and camp out with that idea that that God somehow delights in being with, uh, there's something about that that really should change, change the foundations on which we live and worship. 
Suddenly, every place where God's people are gathering is sacred. That what makes a place sacred is not a sign out on Cawthon Road that says church, and not some appointed hour of the week that ought to be more holy than any other. What makes a place sacred is that Jesus has promised when you gather in his name, he shows up. His anointed presence is there with you. And disciples gathering together in Jesus' name, they get shaped and they get changed. And I'm sure that it happens so much in isolation as it does in community. There's a picture of this that I'm sure I've talked about in the past, but but I'm going to rekindle your memory for some of you. On one of our many camping vacations as a family, I was teaching my son a little bit about how to build a fire. He was at that age, you know, kids get to the age where they're fascinated by fire. With boys, it normally happens around age five, and it lasts for about 70 or 80 years, right? And uh, so I was, I was kind of showing him how you, how you build a fire and how important it is that the charcoal or the kindling or whatever your elements are that you're trying to make the fire with, that they be nestled and tucked in close together. Otherwise, the fire goes out. And we could do that by reaching into the fire carefully with tongs and taking a, a stick that was ablaze and pulling it out of the fire and then watching as it turned to embers and then ash and then the fire went out. That's a great picture of what Jesus is getting at in community. When two or three people gather together, God is manifestly present among them. But when you withdraw, when you pull apart, it's easy for the flame to go out. You know, I really wanted to do that illustration in person. I wanted to make a little fire in here. So I was thinking about how do I do that? And I was, I was reading a little bit and then I, you know, I kind of discovered what I already knew that if you burn charcoal inside a building, it creates carbon monoxide and that can kill you. And I thought, well, it's kind of a good illustration, but maybe killing them isn't quite worth it. So what I, what I did instead was I made one of our favorite campfire foods. These are just out of the oven, so they're, they're still kind of warm. If, you, uh, if you're new to the camping tradition or you're new to uh, maybe to Canada, you might not know what this is. But those of you who do know what this is, what's this called? S'more. S'more is a three-hour calorie-loaded campfire delight. You make a s'more by taking a couple of hard graham cracker cookies on the outside. And then inside, you put sweet chocolate and sticky marshmallow. And you wrap it in tinfoil. You toss it in the fire. And then you wait too long. No, you, you, you time it just perfectly. And you bring it out. And boy. Mm. Mm, that's good. Oh, that's really good. Hmm. It's hard to chew, though. What a great picture of life and community. I mean, there's, there's some people in community that are kind of square. They're maybe a little hard, you know, pointy around the edges. There's some who are sweet. Some are sticky, you know, sticky people. But you put them all together. You put them in the presence of a little bit of warmth and heat. And look what comes out. Well, you know, I made 12. I ate one. 
And I was trying to figure out what to do with the other 11. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to set up any false expectations that if you join the worship team, you get rewarded. But this is for the new members of our worship team. Didn't they do a great job this morning? Go ahead, Angie. Yeah. And then it seems to me that all the kids are camped out over on this side this morning. So I'm just going to, and I'll bring some napkins. I'm just going to put them over here. And I will let you not pay attention for the next 10 minutes. Here they are, everybody. If parents are okay with it, come get them. Here's some napkins. (laughs) I think most people... Most people like the idea of community. We treasure the thought of of having those solid relationships and having great experiences together. And that's one of the things that we have mourned the most over the past two years is that that really has been taken from us. Most people ache to be part of a little band of friends or brothers and sisters, a little family, especially when their own family is remote. And I know many of you are, are separated geographically from family, sometimes in a different city, often in a different country. And I don't think what you really came for this morning was another talk on the value of community, because you already know that. But maybe what you're wondering, and what we often sort of are, are, are rubbing up against, is this question, why why, if we want it so much, why is it so hard? I mean, how come we can't just have it? Uh, why can't I just call up the church and place an order? I need five permanent friends, just good ones, and, and send them into my life right now, and we get back, and you get a package, and there they are, and they're, they're yours for the next 30 or 40 years. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, Amazon delivery. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Uh, What I'd like to do for the next few minutes is talk about what I think is one of the great barriers to community. And then we're actually going to spend some time in the service, just a a few moments together, stepping into the practice of community. We don't want to just talk about it. We want to do a little experiment. We're going to run that. We're going to try doing it. Years ago, there was a writer um, I've mentioned him a little bit recently because I started rereading a couple of his books. Scott Peck was a convert to Christianity, but before conversion, he had always been fascinated in his life with the subject of human relationship. When he started looking at relationship from the perspective of a new believer in Jesus and began to look at what might be God's plan for human community and what gets in the way, he was fascinated by the difference between what he saw in God's plan and the church when it was working at its best and what he saw as the fractured image of that plan and where the church was not working at its best or was absent entirely. And when it was working well, he said, everybody knows it. They know it because people get real. They're authentic with each other. Masks get taken off. He meant figuratively, soon, literally, everyone. People just show up, and when they show up, they speak the truth. And they have this feeling when they're surrounded by people who are like-minded in this desire for community, that they are really known, and that they can really know another person. 
And he said, that's how lives get changed. That's how disciples get formed. It's true community. It's a living thing. And in true community, there's always the right balance of encouragement and challenge. It's life-changing. But Peck went on to say that that often what we experience, what gets substituted, is what well, he called it pseudo-community. It's an imitation. It's a fake version of the real deal. What happens in pseudo-community is maybe people hang out together and they're quite polite and they're pleasant, but when they talk with each other, the primary dynamic is conflict avoidance. We may be all pleasant and, and, and nice with each other, but it's kind of shallow. It's superficial. You're just bobbing along the surface of real relationship, and it doesn't transform anyone. But it goes on all the time, and it goes on in the church. I don't want to say that it goes on in this church, but let's be honest, sometimes it does. It goes on in every church. And where it goes on, things get kind of stagnant, and they get boring. And people start thinking, well, I don't really want to go to a small group because nothing really happens there. It's tedious. It happens not just in churches and small groups. It happens in workplaces. It happens in marriages. It happens in households. Pseudo-community. The real question then becomes, how do you move from one to the other, from pseudo-community to the real deal? Because if that's what we really want, life over here, true community, how do we make the transition? Peck had a word for it. And uh, I tell you, it sounds kind of like a ride at Disney World. But he said, in order to get from here to there, you have to go through the tunnel of chaos. And doesn't it sound like a theme park ride? The tunnel of chaos. It means that somebody has to have the courage, has to have enough trust in God to say true things even when they're hard things. Folks, there's something going on here, and I think we need to talk about it. We can't not talk about it. In order to do that, always involves a risk. Going through the tunnel is risky, just like driving into a tunnel is risky, because you can't always see the way out. You enter into it hoping there's an out, you know, believing there's an out, but you can't quite see it. And the question in any setting, marriage, household, workplace, church, is do we have the people who are willing to do it? It's easy, you know, just to, to show up week after week, month after month, to sit in the same place, to smile. Can't see each other smiling anymore, but we've gotten pretty good at reading the wrinkle under the eyes to know that they are are in fact smiling. To smile and to nod, uh, but nobody really knows each other. That's not what Jesus had in mind. That's not what he started way back there in the Gospel of Mark when he called together that first community of friends. So what I'd like to do is walk you through a number of ways that Jesus was modeling what it looks like to enter into that tunnel of chaos. That's not a Jesus word, but the tunnel of chaos. How do you get from here to there, from pseudo-community to real 
community. Those of you who are watching online, if you have the notes, you can follow along. But um, I'm going to take you through a series of three steps. These are not Jesus steps. I don't want you to think of this as some sort of sacred checklist that's dropped out of heaven. You'll find in the back of your Bible. But just a way of understanding the way that Jesus did life. The first way, step one, involves a kind of initiating. Jesus, notice he takes the initiative. He he understands how important community is, and he's not just willing to drift through life. He takes the initiative, and he does something. We heard it in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to hear it now in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw a couple of brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting their nets into the lake, they are fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fish for people. I'll give you community. I'll give you purpose. And they do that. And then immediately, Jesus does the same thing all over again. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And then Jesus called them. And immediately, they left their boats and their father And they also followed him. You know, anytime you see stories like that back to back in the Bible, two parallel stories, understand that repetition in ancient literature is their way of underlining, highlighting, bold printing what's happening. A way of saying that this is really important. Repetition does that. Not holy is the Lord God Almighty, not holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Repetition is a form of emphasis. And Jesus here is emphasizing the importance of drawing together a true community. I'll tell you something else about Jesus. As far as we know, that made him unique among the rabbis in the ancient world. Rabbis didn't do that. They didn't go out recruiting followers They waited for disciples to come to them. They were passive about the thing. In fact, it would be considered beneath their dignity to go out in search of followers. And on the strictly human level, whenever you do that, whenever you put yourself out there, you're always at risk of rejection. What rabbi, person of prestige, would do that? Why would you expect Jesus, Son of God, Lord of the universe, to do that and risk rejection? And we know... Because listed in the followers there is Judas of Iscariot, the great rejection that happened there. We know that it's a risk that sometimes pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. And you know this too. How many of you have ever asked somebody out on a date, and they rejected you? See, this is, what I'm, this is pseudo-community, right? <laughs> Let me ask you again. How many of you have ever asked somebody out on a date, and they rejected you? Okay, that's bad. Okay, let, let's flip it around. How many, how many uh, have ever been in a situation where you were asked out on a date and you rejected them? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> What's your Dan doing up, honey? <laughs> yeah. How many of you, how many of you were asked out on a date and you wish you had rejected? No, we just, okay. Let's move on. When people are involved in true community, in, in what we would call around here the, the ministry of small groups, care groups, life groups, whatever we call them, somehow there is always a beginning. How did you get involved? 
The number one answer is somebody asked me. Somebody invited me. When you ask people why they're not involved, again, the number one answer is nobody ever asked. So ask. That's the first step. Ask. If you see somebody around you, you're not sure they're connected, ask them. If you want to be really proactive in your own life and you're not connected, ask. Who do you ask? Ask Pastor Sheldon. Sheldon, stand up and twirl around once so everybody sees. No, you don't have to do that. (laughs) Ask Sheldon. I mean, he lives for this. You will make his day. You will make his week. I want Sheldon to be so tired by next week that we have to give him another week of vacation to recover from all the asking that just happened. Step one, ask. Pray, God, will you guide me in this? Who are some folks that I can take the next step with? And if you need something really concrete, maybe check out one of the classes that we do around here. Because those are designed to be entry points into life in small groups. We're just coming to the tail end of one of our emotionally healthy classes. Those are great. We're going to start up a new one uh, as part of the Lenten season. Stay tuned for that. Our young adults had a great beginning last night. But whatever it is, ask. As we start to reopen again, we're going to restart our newcomer welcome lunches after our 11 o'clock service. Whenever you see that flash up on there, come, join. Join because you're new here or join because you've been here for 10 years and you feel like you don't know anybody. Come. We'll feed you some s'mores. Yeah. I'll say this too. Some Some of us have been here a long time. And there's a whole lot that we have to offer. And yet it's all bottled up inside of us. When's the last time you came alongside someone who felt kind of disconnected and you did the asking? You invited them in. One of the things we learned a long time ago is that people are not mostly looking for friendly people when they come to a church. People are looking for friends. There's a difference. One is a posture of welcoming. And while we don't want to lose that, it still is only surface level. Maybe you want to pray, God, would you give me a new adventure in friendship? Give it to me with somebody right now, uh, somebody who I can help, somebody we can walk together. There'll be growth, spiritual growth for both of us. Maybe you want to pray that courageously this morning. Okay, that's the first step. Maybe that's your step. Uh, And maybe that's the only step for today. And if that's the case, great, we're cheering for you. But here's a following step. Another step, step two, is a step of risk. The step of challenging one another. That's really the step into the tunnel of chaos. Spiritual growth is not a neutral process. It's a battle against sin. Growth is always a battle against sin. And Jesus is always with us in the battle. Notice in the Gospels how constantly he's challenging people, particularly in that little group of friends challenging them to deeper devotion to God, challenging them to genuine transformation of character. That's what all the Beatitudes were about. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one. I tell you the truth, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful eyes has already committed adultery. That's about a transformation of character. It's not just behavior modification. It's 
character transformation. And it's always rubbing up against confronting sin. Jesus is always on the lookout for spiritual entropy, just where, where things are stagnant. And he surfaces it, and he calls it out when he sees it in people, and he, he addresses it with courage. In pseudo-community, we don't do that. When unpleasant topics come up, we avoid them, we smooth them over, we change the subject because it makes people nervous. Jesus was a lot of things, but he never really struck me as nervous in relationship. Instead of avoiding resistance or tension or difficulty, when these things happened, he would surface it, even though it was scary because he knows this is how growth really happens. And over time, the disciples came to understand that about him. But boy, there were some hard lessons along the way. You remember that one time when they were walking along the road with Jesus? Remember, Jesus is here. And we're told Jesus asked his friends, what were you arguing about along the way? This is Matthew 10. What were you arguing about along the way? But they kept quiet. Why? Because on the way, <laughs> they were arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> well, don't you love it? That, that they're having that argument, well, Jesus is with them. <laughs> Notice that phrase, too. They kept quiet. Oh, you bet they did. <laughs> it's a phrase that characterizes pseudo-community. They kept quiet. There's this difficulty, this tension, but we're not going to name it. We're not going to talk about it, not with Jesus, because that would be embarrassing and scary, and we're not going to do that. That's pseudo-community. And Jesus never let his pseudo-community remain a pseudo-community. He's always pulling people deeper, drawing them towards true, authentic, biblical community. He does it here. Hey, guys, what are you talking about? And then they have it out. And it becomes a teachable moment where they're challenged about the virtues of humility and about the life of servanthood. In really great communities, people are always moving towards tension, not away from it. Not to be edgy, just for the sake of being edgy, but because those are the hard places, the broken places towards which we have to go if we're going to grow up. And that's where never nervous Jesus is always taking us. And so I'll tell you a great New Testament tunnel of chaos word. Turn with me in Romans in chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am convinced that you are competent, and here's the word, to admonish one another. In great communities, people admonish. It goes hand in hand with encouragement. They encourage and they admonish. A lot of times we like the one and we avoid the other. And so things are nice and they're polite and it's never chaotic and nobody ever changes. But Paul says, with the Spirit of God, you can do this. You have to do this. You admonish each other. What does that mean? Well, let me give you some examples. The Bible says, for example, an awful lot about generosity, about being generous. And so we come together as a church, and we hear sermons, we do Bible studies, and maybe we learn some Greek and Hebrew words, and we know the passages, and we can articulate a theology of generosity. We think we've really accomplished something. 
We think we've grown spiritually. And then we get to places like the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, where, where Jesus says, give freely, be generous. What do we expect his disciples to actually do? Articulate a theology of generosity? No. To be generous. If we're not actually being generous, we haven't accomplished anything. And if we don't have people in our life who are calling us to account, how is it that you have reflected the generosity of God in your life this week? Some of you will know that I I went through a season where I was really involved with our denomination, CBOQ, and I I served on its leadership team for... uh, about a decade, uh, Pastor Dave and I overlapped for, for some of those years. And um, back in those days, we would gather regularly. We would gather annually for a large conference. We would invite in representatives from the churches from all over the province of Ontario and parts of Quebec. And we would meet uh, in a convention center, usually up by the airport. And we'd have six, 700 people in the room. We'd have great times of worship and engaging speakers. And, and we'd do some business and then it would be lunch break. And we would unleash this teeming mass of Baptists on the world up there at the airport strip. And they would go across the road to the restaurants. And you know what? The restaurants hated it. They hated it. Do you know why? Because they were the stingiest tippers that they had seen all year. So we used to, you remember this day, we actually used to have to coach people before lunch. Now people, when you go to lunch... We don't want you articulating a theology of generosity. We want you to be generous. Tip your servers. Be generous in that way. Say something of encouragement to them and and, and make it tangible. Our goal is not to learn about generosity. It's to be generous. You all excited about that? So if you're going out for lunch today or to a cafe, what are you going to do? Be generous. Besides, my son and daughter both work in a restaurant. You'll be helping their college tuition. (laughs) Same way, our goal is not just to learn about forgiveness, it's to be forgiving in our lives. Who's holding you to account in that? How often in the group do people talk about that sense of anger, but they've been holding on to it for years? We talk about forgiveness, but who's admonishing us to forgive? Our goal is not to learn about joy, it's to actually rejoice and be joyful people. Those people in your group who are always bleak, always dismal, without railroading them for, for the sadness, can we come alongside them and also challenge them to find the reasons for joy that go beyond the circumstances of their life? Our goal is not just to learn about prayer, it's to pray. In your groups, do you pray? The only way people actually learn to do the stuff that Jesus talked about is the same way that they did it in Jesus' day. They get together in these little communities of followers of Jesus who are doing life together. They're watching each other. They're cheering each other on. They're admonishing each other. And they're holding each other to account. And they're living together in the life of the Spirit. So for some of you, maybe, maybe that's the takeaway today. To live this life with God, wherever two or three are gathered, is to move out of pseudo-community and actually challenge somebody, or to be open to challenge in your own life. One more, one more. Step three is about transparency. It's about being vulnerable. There's a risk 
In fact, there's risk at every stage in this, initiating community, challenging and being challenged in community. But I think one of the most amazing aspects about Jesus' life with his friends was just how transparent he was. If you were with us last week, you know we talked about that aspect of Jesus' humanity. His disciples saw Jesus not just when things were going well. They saw him tired and hungry and angry and weak and rejected. And he didn't hide that from them. And at one point, when he really raised the bar for what this meant, he was challenging the crowds. He was teaching them. A lot of people uh, came to him, but just as many left, they rejected him. And Jesus turned to his disciples. This is in John chapter 6. And he said, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? You can sense the dejection in his voice. It's such a poignant, really a vulnerable question. Peter says, no, where else would we go? We're going to stay here with you. At the moment of greatest crisis in his life, we're told that Jesus began to become sorrowful and troubled. Instead of hiding that, instead of putting on that stoic mask that we often do, instead of just retreating and handling it on its own, the message that they got from Jesus was about transparency. He could have said, I'm going to put on a clinic. Watch me muster up great courage and toughness and do this all on my own. But instead, this is what he did. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, looking right at his friends. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus can be that vulnerable. Who am I to hide? Who are we to hide? We live in a culture where image management is like a carefully cultivated art. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to pretend. It's so odd. We think that that's what's going to make people think highly of us. Instead, it just isolates us. It makes us like one of those little pieces of charcoal that's taken out of the fire And we just watch as the light goes out and it grows cold. But when we come together and we're honest about our strengths and our struggles and our triumphs and our collapses and our our weaknesses, our humanness, people are so hungry for that. There's a song that Rochelle introduced to me last week. And I've invited her and Angie to to play it for us. I'm going to ask you as you reflect on those three steps, maybe one of them connects for you, to act and initiate or or to, to risk and to challenge or vulnerability and transparency. I'm going to ask that you reflect and pray. And then we're going to come back and we're going to close. But I want you to listen particularly and Poignant, powerful lyrics. We will come together reaching out from our comforts. And they will know us by our love.
a time there was this little huddle of people who gathered together in an authentic and risky and vulnerable way. And the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit fell down upon them in power. And out of that little band of followers, a new community was formed and it began to grow. And that little community that, that adopted the name church They didn't grow because people had a lot of money or great connections. What happened was, in the strangest of places in the ancient world, in places like Jerusalem, and then in Ephesus, and then in Corinth, and and eventually in Rome, people would gather together who were never together in the world. 
Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, rich and poor people, men and women. And they began talking about strange things, about about this man who died on a cross and about resurrection. And it wasn't just what they said, as powerful as it was. It was the way that they talked and the way that they laughed together and the way that they cried together and the way that they supported each other and healed each other and shared what little they had with each other. The strange commitment that they made to each other that we will be one and nobody will take from us that unity. Folks looked in on it and said, I want that. I don't understand it yet, but I want it. And it happened again and again and again. And today, around the globe, some two and a half billion people have had it happen for them. And it can happen again. Because from the very beginning of creation, God's plan, his desire, was the creation not just of a beautiful world, but of a beautiful humanity and a human community, himself included among them, to inhabit it and enjoy it. There once was a man who built a community just like that. And when he had taught, and when he had died, and when he had risen from the grave, he sent out his spirit. And it exploded all across the earth. And folks, it can happen here, right now. So that's actually how I want us to close today. You notice how we normally end with, well, the worship team come and they sing. And and then the pastor, we do a prayer, a a benediction or a blessing. And then you all go home. Uh, I'd like to make some time and some space for a kind of ministry in the body this morning. Listen, you don't have to do this. I understand that for some people, this is maybe not something that they're ready for. For other people, you have commitments and you didn't know this was going to happen. But for those of you who are willing to take a little risk, I'm going to ask you to hang out here just for a few minutes, five, 10 minutes, 15, whatever it takes.